Morning, everyone. Do you want to have a look at Daniel chapter 5? Because that's where we're going to look at today. It's my privilege to preach on Daniel chapter 5. What an amazing passage to discuss. What an amazing week to discuss this passage in as well. We'll get into that. Um, Daniel chapter 5, if you've got a text, find it. Otherwise, I will be displaying the text on the screen uh, as we get into it. Um, and uh, looking forward to what God's going to do amongst us. Before I start, I just want to say a big thank you to the church, though. Um, for those of you who don't know, my wife died three weeks ago, but we felt so well supported by the church throughout the whole time, the whole journeys in the strange land, as Dora called it. Um, really well supported, and we appreciated all your prayers and help and offers of support, and we're really pleased with how the funeral went, and particularly the Thanksgiving service. I think it was a fantastic service that the church um, put on, and it really impacted so many people. I'm still hearing stories today of people who came, or even people who only recently have found the video and watched it and were really touched by it, including like an atheist who was there. He's never experienced anything like this before. The prayers were so powerful um, there. Even an atheist who watched it online who said something similar impacted by it. Other friends of Dollars who weren't Christians who are saying, wow, is this what your church is like? You know, I didn't know any of the songs, but I wanted to sing along. Um, and, um, and another friend of Dollars wrote to me this week um, with, with accounts that I'd never been to a funeral like this. I didn't know church could be like that. And another friend who said, gosh, I've had four people tell me how amazing this funeral was uh, this week. You know, it must have been amazing. And uh, even her boss, when she talked to her about it, said wistfully, I wish I could be part of a church like that, to which she answered, you can. <laughs> um, so, you know, Jesus said, um, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I think that was really evident, has been evident, and, and our family commented on it, friends commented on it as well, and it was such a powerful witness. So thank you so much for all that, and I've managed to hold it together as well while saying it, which is amazing. Um, so... <laughs> Right, let's get into Daniel 5. Um, what a week, what a week to preach on this passage, right, with all that's happened this week, right? We're talking about the change of an empire and God setting up kings and setting them down, right? And this is what we've had this week. No accident, God set it up for me to preach this week, right? <laughs> Daniel 5, this week, okay? What a, you know, what a week, what more relevant passage is there in the Bible to this week than Daniel 5? Right? What more relevant passage is there than Daniel 5? All right? let's, let's get into it. So I'm going to read uh, from verse 1. Um, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. I'm going to stop at verse 1 for a minute and then we'll get on to the rest of it. Because I do want to talk a little bit about verse 1 first. Now, Daniel says that King Belshazzar was the king. Can you just... There we go. Done it. Right. Um, and... You know, uh, the skeptics some years ago were like, who's this king then? Who's King Belshazzar? Right? Everyone knows that the last king of Babylon was King Nabonidus. That was what the Babylonian Chronicles said. That was what Herodotus said. That was what Xenophon said. All the historians said the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. Who's Belshazzar? Daniel must be making it up. Um, uh, you know, everybody knows it's Nabonidus. No records anywhere of a King Belshazzar. Nobody found any records of him anywhere. And so the scoffer said, well, what? Daniel's making it up. Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. Daniel's an idiot. Daniel, you can't trust Daniel. The Bible is nonsense. It's got these silly stories about kings that don't exist in history. You know, you can't listen to this kind of text. What a load of rubbish. 
Okay, you get the idea, yeah? Um, but things changed because then we found this uh, little text here called an abonidus cylinder from Ur. And um, no, the verse, that's right, the abonidus cylinder from Ur. Getting my notes the wrong way around. And look what it says there. Nabonidus, king of Babylon, talks about Belshazzar, his eldest son. And suddenly people are like, all right, there is a Belshazzar then. Okay, that's interesting. There is a Belshazzar there. Okay, Nabonidus is the last king, but there is someone called Belshazzar there. So maybe, maybe Daniel was onto something. All right? And then you get the verse account of Nabonidus, which was discovered as well. And in that, it says that Nabonidus appointed his eldest son, went off on a long journey, and entrusted the kingship to his eldest son, right? So he went off to fight a long way off in Timar, and he entrusted the kingship to his eldest son, and we know from the other text that that is Belshazzar. So Daniel actually had it right, because Belshazzar was acting as king, would have been called king in Babylon at the time, as the end of the empire, even though all the historians didn't know this, forgot about it, hadn't got it, Daniel knew it. Why? Because Daniel was there at the time, right? Daniel knew better than anyone else what was actually happening, what actually went on. There's a similar kind of game being played around Darius the Mede today. Darius the Mede turns up at the very end of the chapter and in Daniel 6. And lots of commentators, nearly all the commentators say there's no evidence of Darius the Mede. Well, there is actually, and it would take me too long to explain it now, but if you want my notes, I'm very happy to send them to you. There is evidence, and I think that Daniel will definitely be proven right in the end. Because at the end of the day, this is the inspired text, right? And Daniel was there at the time. And the text of the Bible is absolutely reliable and true. And there's a sense in which I don't care what experts say, right? You could be an expert in history. You could be an expert in archaeology. You could be an expert in science. You could be an expert in philosophy. You could be an expert in psychology. You could be an expert in spirituality, whatever theology. If you're saying something that says the Bible's wrong, you've gone wrong. Right? You have. You've gone wrong. I don't care how expert you are, you've gone wrong. Okay? Because this book actually is the most reliable expert text. It's actually inspired by God. I'll give you an example of this. There are many examples, but one that occurred to me as I was preparing this, um, that um, Nathan came home from school one day, some months ago now, and he'd had an apocalyptic lesson about climate change. And, and he was like, you know, gosh, the world's going to end in about 20 years. We're all going to die because it's getting hotter and hotter and, and, and you know, there's going to be no winters anymore, this kind of thing. So I said to him, hang on a minute, Nathan, just, just calm down a minute. Just, just go and get the Bible and read to me the last verse of Genesis chapter 8, and then we'll talk about this. Right? And so he got a Bible and he looked up the verse. He's smiling away at me now as, as he says it. Do you know what it says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22? This is a cast-iron promise of God, right? Cast-iron promise of God. When the earth remains, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I said, Nathan, look, you know, we do need to worry about the climate. We do need to worry about the environment. We do need to look after the environment. We do need to do recycling, you know, clean energy, all that kind of stuff. You know, look after the, the plants and the, you know, all that. But when it gets apocalyptic and says, this is actually how the world's going to end, it's not. Right? That's what the Bible says. It's not. That is not the way it's going to end. I've read this book, and I don't care what the experts say. This book has it right. Yeah? And, and that's our attitude. That's got to be our attitude to the Bible. This book has it. It's been proven right again and again and again, and it will be proven right again and again and again. So let's get into the passage. I'm going to read 
verses 1 to 9. As I read it, can I ask you to try and imagine the scene in your minds? Yeah? Try and imagine the scene. If you want to close your eyes, that helps you do that. Close your eyes, okay, and help you do that. Um, otherwise, I don't mind you read it, whatever. Try and imagine. Just try and picture in your mind this scene as I read it, and then we'll talk about it. Just reading verses 1 to 9. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be bought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of a wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's colour changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly, bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold round his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's men, wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his colour changed and his lords were perplexed. How did you imagine the scene there? Do you, have you got a picture in your mind of this scene? Have you tried to get that? Yeah? You've got a good image of your mind of this party? It's a party. A party before a fall. Ring any bells? A party before a fall. Right? Here's how Rembrandt, famous artist, pictured it. Uh, you see the king, that the writing appears behind him according to that picture, and he's alarmed and everyone else is, is scared, and, uh, and the writing is somehow illuminated, and, which isn't what the text says, but anyway. But um, yeah, this is quite a good image, but I don't like it because it's kind of quite small. It makes it seem like it's a little banquet, right? And it wasn't a little banquet, it was a big banquet. It says a thousand lords of the kingdom and if Belshazzar's got all his wives and concubines, I think they've probably got all their wives as well. So this is like 2,000 people or something. It's a huge, huge banquet that is happening out there. Um, this is another picture I think is a bit better. Uh, John Martin, 1820. They knew how to paint them, didn't they? I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but it's a much bigger scene. You know? It's kind of outdoors. I don't think you could even fit 2,000 people in that scene either. But you get the idea. It's a big thing. And you know, given that it is perhaps 2,000 people, even today you can't fit that many people indoors very easily, it probably was outdoors, actually. Right? And, it, it, you know, and it's um, actually, it's in October, it's probably a moon festival, as I'll get to, and it's a massive, massive banquet. All the important people in the kingdom are there. And then in the black there, just behind the table, that's meant to be Daniel, and the writing is meant to be up there um, in this kind of scene. Can you, can you try and imagine what this is like um, when um, Daniel is there. And then, just to show you another picture, this is actually, um, actually a wall from the palace um, in the throne room in Babylon that was excavated and has been reconstructed in the Berlin Museum. You get a picture of the sort of grandeur of it. A human being would stand up about below those, below those lions there. That's about how high it is. In fact, if you see the, very, the little line at the bottom of the picture, that's kind of a rail for museum walkers, so a human being would be much lower than those lines, actually. 
So it's a really big, massive wall that you've got there with this huge fresco on it. So you get the idea of the grandeur of the place, right, and what they, um, how they felt about it. And um, they were really proud, these Babylonians. They thought they were it, right? They thought they were the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen. And they were, actually, the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen, right? And they, they felt so secure. They had these walls around the town that were six and a half kilometers long, that were six and a half meters wide. Imagine how wide that is, right? That's, you know, that's wider than a road, right? Six and a half meters wide. There were 10 plus, sometimes 14 meters high, right? They thought we're invincible. We're invincible. Nobody can conquer us. They boasted we could survive a siege for 20 years, right? Because they had a river running through it. The, the fenced off in the, in the walls was fields and crops and animals. All that They thought totally impregnable. Nobody can get us. Nobody can get us. We can just party away. Absolutely, we're rock solid. What does it say in Proverbs? Pride comes before a fall. Ring any bells again, maybe? Maybe. Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before a fall. And we know exactly what day this was from the history. The Babylonians recorded the dates, and they also recorded eclipses and various other astronomical observations, so we can date it absolutely precisely. This party, Sunday, 11th October, 539 BC. That's when it was. Very next day, empire collapses. That's what happened. Right. And uh, this is about 30 years after Daniel 4. We had Becca preach on Daniel 4, wasn't it, um, a few weeks back. So if you remember in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar went mad, right? He'd become proud, and God said, I'm going to have to humble you. And Nebuchadnezzar actually became like an animal, ate food, ate grass. So they had to sleep outside with the, in the grass and had dew fall on him, all that kind of stuff. So, and they already remembered that, already known about that story. I'll come back to that. Um, it's about 66 years after the fall of Jerusalem when Daniel was taken off to Babylon. So Daniel is probably about 81 years old now, right? He's a pretty old guy, right? He's been around quite a long time. He's about 81 years old. And, and, um, and that's where we are and that's how it is. And Belshazzar knows what he's doing here. He knows. He would have known the story from Daniel 4. Did you know Daniel 4? Some people describe it as the first tract in history. Because in the verse 1 of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm addressing this to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. And he says this whole testimony about, I was too proud and arrogant, and I had to be humbled, and God humbled me. And now, last verse of Daniel 4, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Right? This was... Such a powerful story. Nebuchadnezzar sent it around the entire world. Most of these lords would have been there at the time, would have known about it. Belshazzar would have known about it. If they were too young, they'd have definitely heard about it. They knew that God, the God of the Jews, the God of Daniel, had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that. They also would have known that that God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. And a God... Jesus, it was, appeared with them in the fire at the time. They'd have known all these stories. And yet Belshazzar is so arrogant that he gets the temple vessels taken out of the temple in Jerusalem of Daniel's God, and he mocks them, and he worships idols with them, and he gets drunk with them. He deliberately insults Daniel's God. He deliberately insults the living God that he knew had humbled his father, it's not actually his biological father, it's his 
ancestor, commonly in the Bible, like you know, Jesus is the son of David, this kind of thing. That's what it means. Um, and he, he deliberately, deliberately insulted that God that he knew had humbled his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what he was doing. And then, of course, the writing appears on the wall, a disembodied hand. You know, can you imagine this? An incredible thing, you know, appears and writes this stuff on the wall. And Belshazzar is absolutely terrified. He's absolutely terrified. His knees are knocking. The, the color drains from his face. His loins are loose. That means he wet himself, which is what happens when you're really terrified. You lose control of your bodily functions, right? He's totally, totally, ah, oh, whoa, this is, yeah, he's, he's absolutely terrified there. He's desperate. What does this mean? What does this mean? And he gets all the wise men in. Tell me what this means. Tell me what this means. And he offers them the biggest reward he can give them, which is, of course, the third rulership in the kingdom, because Nabonidus is the actual king of the whole empire. He's the king in Babylon. So he can only offer the third rulership, which authenticates Daniel's account again. So that's why it's the third rulership that he offers uh, to whoever can interpret it. And none of them can interpret it. None of them know what it says. So um, let's read on a bit. Um, let's read verses 10 to 16. So the queen, pause a minute, the queen, so Belshazzar, all his wives were already there. So this is not actually Belshazzar's wife. This is Nabonidus' wife. This is actually Belshazzar's mother um, in this case who comes in here. She wasn't invited to the banquet originally. She comes in, breaks protocol. Doesn't matter because they're all absolutely terrified. Okay. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Notice how confident she is in Daniel's abilities here, right? Let Daniel come, he'll answer this. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar doesn't really want it to be Daniel who interprets this. He's embarrassed, right? He knows he's just insulted Daniel's God, right? So he's like, you know, I don't really want this to be Daniel. And he kind of expresses doubt here, if you can interpret it. Notice that the queen said, he will, right? He'll, he'll, the queen said, he'll be able to do it. And Belshazzar says, if you can, you know, I've heard that you're, you can interpret things, whereas the queen says he can interpret things. He said, I've heard you can interpret things. He's hoping Daniel can't answer it, but he's also desperate to know what the answer is, so he's willing to ask Daniel anyway. And so he gets Daniel in, and, um, and, and, and Belshazzar is embarrassed in front of Daniel about what he's just done. So then, reading the next section uh, from verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, 
Let your gifts be for yourself and keep your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writings of the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the best of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. Notice how blunt Daniel is here. Also how rude he is, right? Belshazzar says, I'll give you all these gifts. Daniel doesn't even start off saying, O king, live forever, anything like this. Daniel just says, keep your gifts for yourself, mate. That's rude, right? That's really rude to say that to a king, okay? And, and then he goes on to, to you know, remind Belshazzar what he already knows very well, that he's just insulted the very God that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by, and he's just gone and deliberately done this, and, and that God is going to be pretty angry with him. This is a very brave thing for Daniel to do, to stand in front of the king and say, you know, God's going to judge you for this, right? You've just done something that is not good. You've just done something that's offending the Most High God. You should have humbled yourself. You haven't humbled yourself. You're going to be in trouble, mate, okay? Um, and so then we get on to the last bit when Daniel actually reads the writing. Verse 24, then from his presence, Daniel says, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave a command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put round his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Wow, that very night. So let's have a look at what this writing looked like. That is um, probably what it looked like. It's an Aramaic inscription. You read it from right to left. There are no vowels in this kind of writing. Each word has got three consonants in it. Without any context, it is very difficult to know what it could mean. It could mean a number of different things. The last word, Parsin, for example, if you'd put different vowels, it would mean Persians. And since they know about the Persians and are a little bit worried about the Persians, that probably scares them a bit. And that is probably deliberately a word play in this mix that God set up. Um, and uh, Daniel interprets it. Some people say as well that it means a minor 
and tekel is a shekel, and then parsin is half a shekel, so it's kind of um, money weights as well that's being talked about here. Um, but Daniel interprets it very clearly and says, um, this is mene, you've been numbered, numbered. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar. God has numbered the days even of the whole kingdom of Babylon. And actually this is the last day. This is the last day. God set it up. God did it. God organized it. This is the last day. Your days have been numbered and they are at an end now. This is the end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance. You know, in other words, you've been judged and you're ripe for judgment now. You're ripe for judgment now. Now is the time. You know, your deeds are coming to come home to roost and you're going to um, get the punishment you deserve. Passing, divided, split up, broken up. This kingdom is going to be broken up. You know, this is not what they're expecting. You know, they're partying. They feel so secure. They feel like they're in the most secure palace and town in the world. And yet, that was it. The end was coming. And Daniel pronounced this um, on the night when the attack came. And the Medes and the Persians came along. This is a picture of the Median soldiers. Uh, that's the elite group called the Immortals, a bit like the SAS of the Medians. Okay, um, they look a bit scary, don't they? All right, um, and it's troops like that that would have come in. Um, in fact, the historians say that the um, the Medes and the Persians managed to divert the river that was going through the town and get into the town on the dry riverbed. Right, an amazing strategy that they did. And of course, all the Babylonians were drunk. They were at a party. They were drunk, and so they just. They just totally slaughtered, totally defeated the town overnight, just like that. There's the immortals. Well, they're all dead now. Um, and, of course, you know, Daniel would have been aware of several prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah that Babylon was going to come to an end and that this is how it was going to happen. He would have known, for example, of this prophecy from Isaiah. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold, their bows slaughter the young men, they will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb, their eyes will not pity children, Babylon the glory of the kingdoms, and the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will lie, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And uh, in Jeremiah as well, uh, the Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because of his purpose concerning Babylon to destroy it, for that is the vengeance of the Lord, the um, for the vengeance for his temple. Notice for his temple um, there in that one as well. There are several prophecies like this. Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 50 and 51 is all about Babylon. While they are inflamed, I will prepare for them a feast and make them drunk, that they may become merry and sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, says the Lord. So the prophecy says it will be on a feast when they're drunk. That's when they're going to fall. That's when it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. Um, again, Jeremiah, I will make drunk her officials, her wise men, her governors, her commanders, her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the Lord, declares the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. And the historians all relate that this is what, was, what happened when Babylon fell. They were partying. Um, it was October the 12th, as I said. That was a new moon. Probably it was Hunter's Moon Festival, which is a kind of new moon that comes when it comes up at the same time as the sun sets. They worshipped the moon, one of many silly things they worshipped um, in those days. And so they were having this festival celebrating that. They were all very drunk and silly and um, suddenly sobered up, of course, by this writing on a wall. But then 
the soldiers came and it was all over, overnight, that very night. Um, and here's, here's another prophecy. I always find prophecies that actually give the timescales the most stunning prophecies in the Bible. Um, this is Jeremiah 25. The whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making, an everlasting, making the land an everlasting waste. Well, Babylon actually rose to prominence and started defeating other nations in 609 BC. And here we are in 539 BC, 70 years later, exactly. Jeremiah had it exact, and God had it exact as well. The Babylonians, you know, if you notice back in, was it verse 6? Um, it's, yeah, um, verse, sorry, verse 18. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and glory and majesty. And then God's going to take it away again from Babylon exactly 70 years later when they're ripe for judgment. And that's exactly what he did. And the point is that God has numbered the days of the nations, hasn't he? Right? He's numbered the days, numbered the days of Boris Johnson, right? He's numbered the days of Putin. He's numbered the days of Biden. He's numbered the days of Macron. He's numbered the days of Great Britain. He's numbered the days of the ascendancy of the West, right? He knows exactly. He's got it all planned and organized. Of course, he factors in prayer into all this as well. So our prayers make a difference um, in this as well. He's got it all numbered. He's got it all, Lord. He's got it all absolutely sorted. He knows and he sets it up and he's working through it. We sang that song, Who Rules the Nations? With truth and justice. Who rules? This is not just Israel, right? This is every nation. Who rules the nations with truth and justice? The king of glory, the king above all kings. It's him, right? And what a week to talk about this when God has just humbled Boris and brought his days to an end, right? and his days were numbered by God as well. I want to bring it up to date there because sometimes you know, we can think that this is all Old Testament, this is all a long time ago, and God's not ruling the nations today, even though we sing it. Do we really believe it that God's still ruling the nations uh, today? Here's a story um, that I find inspiring. Back in 1998 in Nigeria, General Abacha was the Prime Minister, President, of Nigeria. He was a thoroughly evil, corrupt ruler. Um, he was a tyrant. He totally ruined the country. They're still searching for the missing billions that he squandered out of the country today. And, uh, and he was destroying the nation and causing huge problems for the nation. And uh, some brave uh, leaders in the nation, former politicians and other leaders, um, got together at one time and said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to, we've got to do something and say something to General Abacha. And so they decided they would uh, issue an ultimatum to General Abacha and write him a letter saying, if you don't resign and give way to free and fair elections, we will call a general strike and we'll force your hand to do that. It's very dangerous for them to plot this way, be a capital offense. General Abacha, if he knew about it, would kill them all. Um, but they still had this meeting, had this discussion. Then, of course, they had to work out, how do we get this letter to General Abacha? How do we do that? And that's not an easy job for someone to do, is it? So in the end, this chap, Solomon La, um, volunteered to do that, a Christian man. And um, he prayed about it a lot. And uh, he 
you know, obviously nervous about it, and he said, I'll go and take the letter. He said goodbye to his wife, not knowing he'd ever see her again, and he went off to the presidential palace. He was a former politician at the time, was known in the country, and he went to the palace and asked to see General Abacha. General Abacha kept him waiting for six days um, in the palace, finally granted him an audience uh, with General Abacha, and Solomon Law said, I've got this letter which I need to read to you. And as he read the letter to General Abacha, General Abacha became more and more angry and furious and said, treason, treason, and uh, eventually said, right, guards, take this man away, throw him into prison, I'll decide what to do with him tomorrow. And so Solomon La was thrown into prison that night. That night, General Abacha flew in some prostitutes, as he used to do, and as he was cavorting with them, he had a heart attack at 4.30 in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, he died. Right? And that morning, the, the prison guards went to Solomon La, opening his cell, Solomon expecting to hear his fate. They said to him, General Abacha's died. What should we do now? And Solomon La became the de facto leader of the nation. Right? He announced to the nation the death of General Abacha, and he said, and I will ensure there's going to be free and fair elections across Nigeria now. And the next year, 1999, there was elections held in Nigeria, and uh, President Obasanjo, another Christian man, became president of Nigeria, the first Christian president of Nigeria. Now, what an amazing story. How like Daniel is that, right? But to top it off, back in 1987, Clifford Hill had prophesied over Solomon La in front of a huge audience. And he prophesied over Solomon La and said, one day you will lead the nation. And before the end of the century, Nigeria will have its first Christian president. Right? And it was fulfilled exactly like that because we serve the same God that Daniel did. Right? We serve the same God that Daniel did. Who knows? Who sets up the kings and brings them down? Who numbers their days? Right? Who's determined the times and the seasons? He rules the nations with truth and justice. The same God rules the nations today. And here we are this week. Did you know there's a national prayer breakfast on Tuesday? There's one every year. I've been to it once or twice. I didn't go this time, but Boris Johnson was at this national prayer breakfast as was Sajid Javid, as were several other politicians. And Sajid Javid, in his resignation speech, started off by saying, yesterday I was at the National Prayer Breakfast. And at the National Prayer Breakfast, they talked about how the responsibility that comes with leadership. And he implied that that prompted him to resign that day, the first of many resignations that ended up with Boris Johnson resigning. Right? And so God was involved this week as well. And many people were praying for God to have his way done this week as well. And so God rules today. God rules in this nation. God's totally ruling over who is there. We need to pray for the next person. Um, we really need someone with integrity, don't we, and righteousness in that position. That's got to be the number one prayer need. There are many other needs as well I could list off, but let's start with those. Um, and that's what we really need in the new leader who takes on that role. And God is ruling over the nations. Do you believe that? Right? God is ruling over the presidents, over the prime ministers, over the kings, over the rulers, over the authorities. Do you get it? Right? Do you think that's right? Do you believe it? Get, have some nods. If you're down, getting some nods. Okay, that's good. 
But let's bring it down to home. How much more if God rules over the nations and God rules over the presidents and the prime ministers, how much more is he ruling over your boss at work? Right? How much more is he ruling over the people that you meet, the people who have influence in your life? Right? If he's ruling over the nations, how much more? We sometimes find it harder to believe that, don't we, right? That it's actually making a difference in my life. But it is as well, right? It's actually your boss is there to develop your character. They might not know it. They might not realize it, right? But that is actually one of their jobs that God's given them to do, right? To develop your character at work. I remember once I worked for a workaholic boss. He would work. He was very workaholic. He worked every night late. He felt guilty if he went home at any reasonable time. And he would be in, in at the weekends every weekend. He would drag the secretaries in on Saturdays, drag the secretaries in on Sundays as well. And, uh, and he just, yeah, that was what he was like. And, uh, and then he started saying, well, I want you to all come in on Monday morning. And every morning, morning we're going to have a morning meeting. And you have to explain what you've done over the weekend that relates to work. And so, you know, this is what we had to do. And, uh, and you know, I remember, so we had to do that several weeks. And then one week I was thinking, gosh, what am I going to say this Monday morning as I was going into work? And I think it's phone a friend time. I'm going to have to phone a friend and find something to say this week. And that was my plan. And so we got into work. And they said to us, Colin no longer works here. Your new boss is Rob. And there was no further explanation. We're not going to tell you what happened. We're not going to tell you why. He no longer works here. Here's your new boss, Rob. And Rob was completely different. Right? Rob lived for the weekends. Right? <laughs> Rob was 9 till 5, if that, 4 o'clock. On Fridays at 4 o'clock, he's off. Bye, I'm off sailing now. You know, that was he, but he got so much better work out of us. You know, he got so much better loyalty, you know, and he was such a better team leader. And I learned so much about leadership and, and teamwork and how this all works. And in a sense, God set that all up for me, right? In a sense, that, that was training for me. That was development for me to see all this stuff. And, you know, God works through all of this. And God was setting up and God was removing at the same time. And I remember hearing a story about a teacher teacher told this story. He was running a Christian union at the school, and um, it, was, it was really growing. Kids were becoming Christians. Some kids were getting healed, and it was all really exciting, but the headmaster really wasn't happy about it, and he was really trying to clamp down, really trying to make life difficult for this teacher, and the teacher was feeling more and more stressed about it and praying about it and getting anxious and worried about what the head teacher was going to do, and then the head teacher died. The head teacher died. And he felt God say, what were you worried about him for? Why were you scared of him, right? Why are we scared of people, right? They're just people, right? And, um, and God is totally on these things, right? God is totally in the mix of it all, right? He's totally in charge of what happened this week in the nation, but also this week in your workplace as well, right? Also this week where you work and where, what's happening there as well. Let's stand and shall we pray. And as I've said quite a few different things today, and I believe God's been speaking to us today, I just want you to each just take a minute to between you and God, what is God highlighting to you today from what I've said, or even from the rest of what's happened in the service today, Pete's word as well and other things. What is God highlighting to you 
today that you're going to take away, you need to respond to today that God's just wanting to touch in your life today. I want to ask you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this passage. Thank you, Father, that you rule the nations with truth and justice. Thank you, you rule over the kings and authorities. Thank you, we serve a mighty, powerful, amazing God. Thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are part of your family. And uh, we're sons and daughters of that King. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you also rule over our lives. You also rule over our workplaces. You also rule over our families. You're totally in charge of it all. And Father, I just ask that today you'd increase our confidence in you and our trust in you and our knowledge of you and our understanding of you and our um, ability to recognize that you are working for us, through us, in us, with us, developing us, training us, teaching us. Let us see you at work. Let us see how you are at work in our lives today, Lord Jesus. Jesus. Now, as I was praying about this, I just felt that um, I'd like to pray for people who are feeling stressed about work at the moment. I was, I've, well, I've been very stressed in my career once. I was so stressed, I vomited every day before going to work. I hope no one here is like that. But um, if today you're stressed about work, work is stressing you, let's pray for you today. And I'd just like you to indicate by just indicating with a hand or something. I'm not going to ask you to do any more than that. Um, but if, if you want prayer, I'm just going to pray for you now. There's a few people, thank you, who are indicating. That's great. Yeah, okay. A few more people. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, Father, we just want to pray, Lord Jesus, for these people who are feeling the pressure of work at the moment, Lord Jesus. We just want to pray for your supernatural peace to come and fill them in Jesus' name. We just want to pray for your supernatural understanding that you reign over their workplace. You reign over that office. You reign over those bosses. You reign over these colleagues. You reign over them, Lord God. You are in charge. You are working in their lives. You are using it in their lives. You're developing them. You're going to bring testimonies out of trials, Lord God. You're going to bring testimonies out of trials in these lives today, Lord Jesus. I just want to pray that each of them would know that you're with them. You're with them in it, Lord Jesus. You're with them in the workplace. You're with them tomorrow. When they go into work tomorrow, you're with them. I pray that you'd encourage them. They'd have a sign from you. You're with them in the office tomorrow. You're with them in the workplace tomorrow. They'd know that. They'd take you there. They'd have a divine perspective on what is happening in their workplace, and they'd know that you are working with them, through them, in them, through it. I pray in Jesus' name. Give them wisdom supernatural wisdom to know what to say, what to do, how to work, how to interact with their colleagues. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.